0: quality of metta. It's one of the parami. Metta means goodwill, but it's often referred to as loving-kindness. So goodwill does manifest as kindness, and ultimately it consummates in unconditional love. And so when we use the word love in English in this context, thinking of it and using it in in the sense of that quality of unconditional love. It's not specific to one person or to people we like or approve of. But it's for all beings. Whatever and wherever they are. Just like the sun shines on all beings, it doesn't only shine on nice people or Canadians shines on insects, too, on everything, every creature. Contemplate this for how we relate to our own being. Having some attainment is the jackal's yelp. Having no attainment is the lion's roar. This is by Viktor Frankl. Forces beyond your control can take away everything you possess except one thing, the freedom to choose how we respond to the situation. This is by Ajantaya Saro. There is an energy that unchanneled, flows into ill-will and finding fault. Deal with it wisely, and you may pour that molten flow into a Buddha within your own heart. So now I'd like to read to you from a very beautiful sutta, and it's about the topic of metta, goodwill, loving-kindness. And it speaks to this using wisdom, an enlightened wisdom, an awakened wisdom, to keep molding and channeling that energy that can turn to harmful use of our strength, our speech, or mental, or physical acts. So the qualities of metta, which we can develop and practice, can lead to the liberation of mind. There are several suttas in the Pali Canon, which speak to this directly, and which mention the channeling, or the the developing of an expansive quality of loving-kindness that goes out towards all beings without choosing, choicelessly, boundlessly, that can be the basis from which we can realize liberation of the heart. This is taken from the numerical discourses, the Anguttara Nikaya number 1116, and it's called the Blessings of Metta. Monks, when universal love, universal, this is very, very crucial, it's not individual, it's a universal love, and it's it's developed in the heart. Monks, when universal love, leading to liberation of mind, is ardently practiced, developed, unrelentingly resorted to, used as one's vehicle, made the foundation of one's life, fully established, well consolidated, and perfected, then these eleven blessings may be expected. What are these eleven? One sleeps happily, one wakes up happily, One does not suffer bad dreams. One is dear to human beings. One is dear to non-human beings. The gods protect one. No fire, no poison, and no weapon can harm one. One's mind gets quickly concentrated. The expression of one's face is serene. One dies unperturbed. And even if one fails to attain higher states, one will at least reach the state of the Brahma world, which is a rebirth of distinction. Monks, when universal love, leading to liberation of mind, is ardently practiced, developed, and relentingly resorted to, used as one's vehicle, made the foundation of one's life, fully established, well-consolidated, and perfected, then these eleven blessings may be expected." And what he's referring to here is metta-citta-vibhuti, which is universal love leading to liberation of mind. And it's based on a deepening of samadhi, the mental cultivation, uh, absorption, based on on the meditation on metta. And so metta, as a meditation, frees the mind from hatred, purifies the mind from selfishness, from greed, and from delusion. And every time we practice metta, even for a short time, we can experience the joys of a little measure of freedom, and we can grow that. But it's only when our samadhi practice, our stilling the mind and calming the mental formations, practice matures, that we can experience a level of samadhi which can then open to those insights we've been reviewing and lead to directly leads and to liberation of mind. So, I'm going to go over each of these terms that were used in describing how we develop that mental So, in the description, It says that it is practiced. What does it mean to practice metta? It means that we develop it ardently, not just through thinking. We don't think metta, but we we feel it, we practice it wholeheartedly, and we make it our guiding philosophy in our life. So it's not just something we do on the cushion, but we're practicing universal kindness like unilaterally, when we meet people, when we speak to people, when we do our work, when we go in the car, come home in the car, how we drive around, how we behave in the car on the road, how we travel. This is a kind of practice. The next one is called aserita. It's an ardent practice of metta. And developing bhavita, that's another Pali word, this is an internal practice of metta. And it's about the culture of the heart, how we develop the heart with this loving, kind, quality of mind, this openness, this opening. Just as you see the way a flower opens to the sun, some flowers, like we have daylilies at the Hermitage, and in the daytime they open to the sun and at night they close. They just close up. And actually they only bloom for one day. That's why they're called lilies. But in this practice, the the development, the bhavana, the bhavitavata, is a, a culture that we cultivate. So we're always opening we're not closing it at certain times but we're developing the power the steadfastness to keep that type of attitude within us available like nourishment nourishing ourselves and others and the result of it is we get we begin to feel the mind integrating it becomes integrated in the sense of purifying purified it in a way that is natural. It's like when water comes from a spring, it has a certain taste. Very sweet. Very sweet taste, usually, spring water. And this integration of mind leads to a a springing, a wellspring. It springs forth. The metta just comes forth naturally from the native light of the heart. And that's because all the faculties, faith, wisdom, energy, the faculty of energy and mindfulness working together, the faculty of being able to focus the mind, still the mind, concentrate the mind on one object, commit, commit to seeing through to the truth of how things are. And the wisdom faculty, these all become integrated. They work together harmoniously. So we're not fractured. Our minds become developed and unified. So the Buddha's teaching is that our whole mind grows in maturity through this kind of universal love. And I've said in a couple of the groups that metta is like the oil you can't drive your car without having oil in your engine. You may have gas, enough gas, you have everything else. The tires are full of air, the brakes work, everything is intact, the axles, everything is balanced. But there's no oil. So that's not going to take us very far. But if we oil the engine, the inner workings, of the heart with metta, then we can go all the way, the whole path. And if you break the Eightfold Path down into its components, you'll see that every single quality is imbued, is permeated with this goodwill, with this wholesome intention, wholesome, clear state of mind, friendly state of mind in our action our speech, our way of seeing and looking, our way of spending our time, everything we do with care, with a a gratitude, and our effort, our ability to pay attention. If we don't do that in a friendly way, how can we possibly approach the object that we're looking at? We wouldn't be able to approach it. So to really hold an object in the heart and commit to holding it, there must be better there. The very root of our meditation practice depends on that. And we water it, we oil it, we lubricate it. Really a wonderful thing. So the. floods of desire and ill will and opinions and thoughts and the mind wandering and being scattered and restless. We stop, we're present, we, we open, we oil the workings of the heart and the harmonious cooperation of all the faculties through this development of the Bhavita, metta, And then Bhāvikata is again the repeated practice of metta, more and more, repeating and repeating in all our waking hours. And even when we fall asleep, then we fall asleep with that mind that, oh, this is a time to rest the body. But the mind goes into this river, is transported into a restful state that is still embedded in and embodying somehow this quality of metta. This generates such a power. When we wake up and we're ready to meet the world, we're prepared for anything. We're soft, malleable, flexible, receptive, but powerful, because within us we're integrated. And each of these, at we've unrelentingly resorted to this metta. Unrelenting means not stopping, unceasing. It becomes continuous. And that, as we noticed before, that means we have to forbear. Here comes the quality of patience. Patient like the earth. Patient like a mountain. Patient like the sea, which also receives all kinds of detritus in it. I remember when I sailed across the Atlantic, we were in a a 60-foot boat. It's nothing compared to the cruise ships. And so if we were in a shipping lane, we had to really watch out, because these huge boats would come along, and sadly, they would dump their garbage. These enormous bulks of garbage would be floating in, in our passageway and we'd have to zigzag through this detritus, this wreckage on the sea. This terrible, destructive. It was very disconcerting for us. And at night, you couldn't even see them. And at least a big ship has lights, and you can prepare. But all the garbage they throw in the ocean, never mind the danger it put our boat in and our lives, but what it does to the creatures who end up Eating this stuff and dying because there are many dangerous and undigestible plastics and other poisons going down into the sea. And the sea accepts it all. Accepts it all. But it does have its harm. So unrelentingly weaves our five spiritual faculties and um, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom, as I mentioned. And we apply them to their full potential as this neta is worked into our system. And then the fourth one is yanika, yanikata. We use neta as our vehicle. Uh, yanikata means we're we're tied to it, we're yoked to it, and it's a total commitment. Like we're in this body, if we consider it a vehicle. We're totally committed to it, because this is what we're riding in, we have no choice. This is the gift that we've been given. If you're in one kind of vehicle, you don't look around wishing you were in another one, because that's very debilitating to our ability to work with what we have. When we don't have gratitude, our energy becomes scattered. If we're comparing and thinking about the lack then that creates an obstacle, a dysfunction in the mind, a disheartening. But metta is that which uplifts the heart and propels it forward. It's not a propulsion like a rocket ship. It's (laughs) more just like a healthy engine that you can travel with, you can journey with. And it makes the journey more smooth, more lovely. And one can easily commit to that because one sees the power and the beauty of it. So it's a yamikata. And you know that this is a divine abiding. It's a divine miracle. It's a sublime abiding, like we chanted this morning. And we can spread it in one direction, first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter, dividing the universe up into these four quarters, which receive our metta. One of our chants about the sublime abidings speaks exactly in that way. You just do four quarters. It's so simple. It is directional, but it's simplified. Just like our, our life the more, and our minds, the more we simplify, the easier it is for us to go forward in the journey, because we're not trying to hold on to concepts. The Buddha was teaching beyond concepts. This, from the saying of Lao Tzu, not to plunder the mystery with our concepts, but to dwell in its intrinsic emptiness. So, there's yet another quality. Watukata. Watukata is we make meta the foundation of our life. Imagine. Yes, it becomes a shelter. But when we make it into the foundation of our life, we are really rooted in it. So if you think of yourself as a plant, what do you? What would you like to be rooted in? Is it sand? Are we rooted in sand? Actually, some plants grow better in sand, or do we have a specific kind of fertilizer that we we need to use? And he, what he's saying here is, Watu we use it as our shelter. It's our chief resort. That means that's where we spend our time. Resort is referred to here. It's not like a holiday resort, where you go for a holiday, and you think, oh, I want to go to Hawaii and stay at some beach resort. This is a mystical resort. This is not a worldly resort. But the word resort means, where do we want to spend our time? How do we want to spend our time? How would we like to grow in this dhamma and discipline? So we want to use metta as our chief resort. It's our protection. We want to be safe. If we want safety, we can always go to this quality of metta. And then remember, when we've done that, that we're actually in contact with and connected to, plugged into the Eightfold Noble Path. Because metta is keeping us on that path. Every limb of the path is yoked to it. Intrinsically, inherently, we're related to metta. We travel in it. And there is more. Anutita. Anutita means we're fully established in it. No one can tear it away from us. And no one can tear us away from that. It's a loyalty. We feel loyal to our family, mom dad, brother, sister. We feel loyal. But this is a different kind of loyalty. This is like going down, down to the very fount, maybe even lifetimes, of where we've been coming from and where we want to incline our mind. So if we are rooted to it, Anutita to the metta, that means that it's going to direct us towards Nibbana, because that's that's where it leads naturally. It's the quality that leads to cegu which is liberation of mind. So as long as we stay rooted in it, that's where we will... This tree, this great tree that we will grow into, will incline in that direction. Rigid also means that it's like an anchor, so that it's that secure. Just the way a boat, boats in the harbor, you usually put their anchor down so they won't float away or be carried away by a storm. Another quality is parichitta, it's well consolidated. We consolidate it universally available. It's consolidated within us, so that it, it is freely given. It's not like we only get it sporadically. Sometimes a, a spring, I notice we've had droughts at the Hermitage, and sometimes our pond gets very shallow. But when we're practicing this metta quality correctly, then it never dries up. It's not sporadic. It's truly always available within us. So parichitta, we consolidate it. And we do this, and then it becomes effortless through our virtue, through being so devoted and dedicated to following the path of virtue in daily life and in our meditation practice. As a meditation practice, is by itself a purification. And in fact, this whole path is called the Visuddhimagga. It's the path of purification. It's not just a book, but that's what the path is. So it's not just like stress reduction technique. No. It's something much grander than that, much more universal than that. So we are on a stage that is, Cosmic. It has cosmic implications. It's for our own well-being, but it's also for the well-being of all beings everywhere. And then we perfect it susamarada. Susamarada means that it's completed, it's consummated through this total commitment to the Netta. perfection of meta, And that's why it becomes one of the ten perfections, when it's perfected. And of course, it could be a very long road to that, but it doesn't matter. We're here doing that. And every day that we practice, every devotion that we make to bringing this quality forth, applying it, sending it in all directions, and being devoted to it, leads us in the direction of that conservation. We never have to worry about that. So those are the ways that we develop the metta. We do it ardently unrelentingly, and, and we develop that measureless freedom in the heart. So I wanted to relay a couple of stories to you from the suttas, which describe the power of metta. At one time, the Buddha was returning from his alms round with his monks, and as they were passing by a prison, the executioner in that prison had received a bribe from one of the Buddha's enemies, his cousin Devadatta. And he let loose a very fierce elephant named Nalagiri. And and it was used for the execution of criminals. So this elephant was in a very bad mood. And it was stirred up by the executioner to the point that it was intoxicated with anger. And he sent it rushing towards the Buddha. And it was making these loud, trumpeting noises. And Ananda was walking with the Buddha as his attendant. When he saw this elephant rushing towards the Buddha, what did Ananda do? He tried to throw himself in front of the Buddha to protect him. And the Buddha said, Stand aside, Ananda! Because the Buddha was projecting metta towards the elephant. Now, this is a very important point, because often in modern language we talk about psychological term is, don't project your anger on me. Or we notice when we're in family life or in, in group situations where there's a lot of content, com- conflict, and we find other people projecting their ill-will towards us. Okay, now, this gives us a clue to how powerful metta is. If ill-will can have so much effect on our mood, that people can stir us to lose our temper because of their projections. And their projections are based on old traumas, and yet they're angry and they may just give us an unkind look and we can flare up. Imagine the Buddha, fully awakened, projecting this loving heart towards a mad elephant that was rushing towards him to destroy him. So what does the elephant do? As it approaches the Buddha, it slows down, it comes up to him, and it kneels in front of the Buddha. It kneels down. This is the power of metta. This incident is recorded in the suttas. It's said that the elephant came under the sway of the Buddha's power of love, and he projected towards that wild beast. So we can take this to heart, and we can try it out, try it out, and see. In some situation to come, if somebody is projecting their ill will towards you, instead of reacting inwardly or outwardly, restraining the outward, reaction, but inwardly we're reacting or even saying something that one, we might regret. If we can prevent ourselves from speaking, but further than that, going further than that, bring up, remember the power of this projection of goodwill, and try it. So may, you, may you be free from suffering. You don't have to say it, because they might mishear what you're saying, and they might think you're slandering them, because I've experienced this. People will often, if they're upset, they will not hear what you're saying. They'll distort your words and they'll hear what they think they're hearing, which might inflame them even more. But just quietly to yourself in your heart, may you be free of suffering, may you be well, may you be peaceful, may you be free of suffering, may you be well, may you do no, no harm to me, may you receive my love, may you receive my loving kindness, and then step out of the way. Because we're not fully enlightened. It may not be even one part enlightened. So wherever we are on the path, we have to recognize our limits, and don't give people a chance to do harm. If you feel that your projection is not powerful enough to prevent the harm, then just step out of the way, skillfully, not angrily, not violently. Or you can gently say, excuse me, I have to go now. In a kind way. Leave them with a taste of kindness, a taste. Even if they don't hear it at that moment, maybe an hour later, two hours later, they may hear it. Because they'll be going over it in their minds, they will be bouncing from their own anger. They will be rebounding from that violent energy. And it will keep arising and turning in their minds over and over. And then they might lash out at someone else because that's what happens when anger is out of control. It's such a force. Like a storm, till it peters out, it could cause so much damage till it just spends itself. So until that is spent, you can throw out a little seed, and then when the energy is spent, someone was telling me about an angry relative that they sent a very beautiful letter to, a letter of love and gratitude and forgiveness. And then they felt very sad that he may not have read the letter, or understood it, or received it. But then when he died, They went to see the effects that were left, and there was the letter. That means he received the letter and treasured it, because he kept it and read it. So we never know what effect our kindness can have later on. When the storm dies down, when the anger dies down, when they get into a somber mood and there's no one around, because. They act so tempestuously, it's hard to be near them, and they feel lonely and bereft, and then they remember this letter and they read it, and can think at least one good thought about themselves. Somebody loves me. And then they may have a bit of relief from their own unwholesome inner workings. So that's a kind of blessing that we can offer with mental. Yeah. There's one other story. This is back in the day. It's uh, recorded in the scriptures in Sri Lanka in the Visuddhimagas about a, a rich man who he heard that the Buddha's teaching was very well taught, and so he went there. He became a monk and spent the rest of his life there. And when he came to the monastery, he had brought with him a thousand coins. But as a monk, he was told that he couldn't keep that money. So he spread it throughout the monastery so that people could just share that money. And the whole yard was spread with these gold coins. And he said, Let no one who has come to witness my ordination go away empty-handed. He had so much generosity. After spending five years with his teacher, he decided to go to a forest, to meditate in the forest. In that forest, there were several monks living, that they had supernatural powers. So he put himself to practice, and he decided to do the metta meditation And he thought he would develop this metta practice with all his heart, with all his might, and after a while, he thought of leaving. And then the next day, he heard this voice. And he said, Deva, one of the tree Devas, was weeping. He asked the Deva, why are you crying? And the Deva said, I'm crying because you're leaving. And because living here in this tree, we could feel your metta. And now when you leave, we will miss that. Who will care for us? Who will send that to us? You know, everywhere else in the forest, the devas are all fighting, and the humans are all quarreling with each other. Only you are sending out these beautiful energies of loving-kindness. Then the monk said, Well, if you feel like that, I'll stay a little longer. So the monk stayed on. He stayed on. And then he was there for another four months. And again, the deva convinced him not to go because the deva didn't want him to stop generating this metta quality, and so he stayed on permanently, and he realized Nibbana through his meta practice. So because the deva besieged him to keep practicing the meta, he was able to realize full enlightenment. So we never know if we keep practicing in this way, if we really do it devotedly, use it as our vehicle, use it unrelentingly, resort to it unrelentingly, anchor in it, are rooted to it, are permeated by it, are devoted day and night, like a mantra. It never leaves you. Then you never know which beings will benefit and how from that quality, and then they will become your friends, they will feed you, they will support you, they will look after you, they will care for you, you will always have good people surrounding you because they feel this quality of goodness. And before you know it, it will lead you to full liberation of mind, besides the quality of universal love having been spread so far and wide from your own heart in all directions.